Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2189 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 41 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Today is a new year. It's a new beginning. As we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle, we took a five-week break here to go through our Advent series, but now we're finishing up with the Gospel of John. And before we celebrated the Advent series, we celebrated the Resurrection Day where the disciples, specifically Peter and John, went to the tomb of Jesus and found it empty. But January 1st is a perfect day to begin these final three messages from John. It was a new beginning for all of the followers of Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which is going to be our theme verse for these last three messages, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. 2022 is behind us. A new life has begun. And that's what we want to focus on today, that new life. Today, we're going to look at the reactions to the resurrected Lord. And our scripture today is John chapter 20, verses 11 through 31. And it's on page 1686 of your pew Bible. But I want to back up one verse to verse 10 from the last message to tie it together. It says, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And that was Peter and John. They had seen the tomb they saw the linens there, and it was covered with resin, so it has sort of had the body and the shape of Jesus. And then the head covering that Jesus had wrapped around his head was in a separate location, folded neatly. And then they went back probably to their own homes during that day. It doesn't specifically said what they did during the day. But let's pick up with verse 11 now, as Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. She went and told the disciples the tomb was empty along with the other women, and evidently she came back to the tomb so upset with what she saw. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She wept, and she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had once been, at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not touch, hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. Then Jesus appears to the disciples. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came, came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. After this, he said, after this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Shalom, which is peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And, you, and then at the, with this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And then Jesus appears to Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in my side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in that house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out, put your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In the last two verses is the purpose of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now John's account of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection are written from a unique perspective. Whereas the other disciples wrote as they were younger, immediately following the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, Paul was much older. He was nearing the end of his life. The Gospel of John, it is thought, was written at the very end of his life, even after he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation. He was a very old man after his exile in Patmos. Now, the younger people typically swaddle their fears and nothing, nothingness in the convenient delusions and distractions of the day as a diversion of thinking about death. But as we grow older, we stand close enough to the threshold of death to peer into that potential abyss of eternity. And we may question what we truly believe. So as John approached the ultimate point or moment of truth, he cast an earnest look over his shoulder to all of us who inevitably will follow him. And he says, believe. And he wrote in that last verse of this passage, the good news sole concern was that by believing you may have life in his name. As John nears the end of his narrative, he presents four encounters with that arisen Christ. Each highlights a crisis in belief. Now, we last the message on John verses 1 through 10. We saw that Peter and John went to the tomb, and they struggled with what that actually meant. 
In their heart, they knew it must mean the resurrection, but they didn't fully comprehend it. As we pick up the passage today, Mary Magdalene, in verses 1 through, or 11 through 18, we saw her go to the tomb weeping. And then that night, that he went, appeared before the disciples in verses 19 through 23. And then a week later, he appeared before the disciples, including Thomas, in verses 24 through 29. Now, we examined the first time where Peter and John entered that tomb and had a crisis of belief, but realized with the empty grave clothes that he must have risen. So let's look at verses 11 through 14 first. The combined gospel accounts, and you have to read through all the other gospel accounts to get the full picture, they show the followers of Jesus in a state of chaos and that morning of the resurrection where Jesus was missing from the tomb. They scrambled around, piecing together random bits of information, trying to make sense of what one had said and another had heard. Now, Peter and John, as I mentioned, probably returned to their respective homes during the day, reasonably sure that Jesus had risen from the dead. At some point, though, Jesus appeared to Peter that, during the day, because in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, speaking of that night where they had met, he said, the Lord is really risen. He appeared to Peter. But it was again difficult to determine what point during that day he met with Peter. The other women who had already been sent out on a mission by the angels, they appeared at the tomb early in the morning at daybreak and saw the stone was rolled away and the body was missing. And then they went and dispersed and told the disciples. Apparently, Mary Magdalene went back, then went back to the tomb, perhaps telling the disciples some good news, the same news. But then she sat down weeping because she didn't understand. And she peered into that burial cave and studied that hollow cocoon of the linens with the resin on it. And two angels were in that tomb, one at the head and one at the foot. And they said, why are you crying? Because they knew Mary had a cause only for rejoicing if she fully understood the truth. She quite naturally thought someone had moved the body of Jesus. But ironically, Jesus was standing right behind her, and she didn't realize it. Mary turned from the tomb and noticed someone in her peripheral vision, just as a glance, standing nearby, and she addressed that man, thinking he must be the gardener or the caretaker in that short glance that he glanced, she glanced up. Remember, her eyes were full of tears, weeping. She could not see clearly, so she glanced over and saw someone standing there. But Jesus repeated the angel's question, why are you crying? Whom is it that you're looking for? Presumably for the same reason to challenge Mary in her crisis of faith at that point. She failed to recognize him, either by sight or by sound. Now, some have suggested that Jesus, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, disguised himself in some way, didn't make himself known. But that is hard-pressed in this context. It's doubtful. She probably just had her eyes full with tears and just glanced over and saw somebody there. But she immediately recognized Christ when he called her by name. It was to seize her attention, to help her to look toward him. More likely, the combination of a couple items. One, the last time she saw Jesus' body was when she was, he was taken down from the cross. And it was bruised and beaten the piercings in his hands and his feet and the sword in his side, 
That's what the vision she had of what Jesus would be looking like at that point. And lastly, she didn't have any idea, couldn't imagine that Jesus would be there in the garden with her. Moreover, the phrase, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize it was Jesus, is that she did, her eyes full of tears, just glancing over, thinking it might be the gardener. And she spoke to him and quickly turned away. Mary's request for the body was probably just like that of Joseph and Nicodemus's in John chapter 19, verse 38. She wanted nothing more than to bury her master with dignity so that she could get on by putting the pieces of her life back together. But when Jesus called her name, Mary turned and looked at Jesus, really looked at him. Through her tears, she realized and then accepted the fact that this was her risen master. You have to understand Mary Magdalene's life. She was, had demons in her. She was a prostitute. And Jesus rescued her out of that life. Though she more than probably even the disciples had a reason for hope in her, in her Messiah. The meaning of gen, Jesus' gentle reproof is not real obvious here. Now, the older versions, like the old King James Version, says, touch me not, or do not touch me. And that's not very helpful. The New, uh, new International Version, which we use, more accurately renders the command, do not hold on to me, or do not cling to me. Mary was so overwhelmed with relief, supposing she had her Lord back, and it would be the same as before, she embraced him and held tightly to him, not wanting to let go. Put yourself in that position. Say a loved one had died, a spouse or a very close loved one. And a couple days later, all of a sudden, that loved one appeared alive. You would run and cling to that person, not ever wanting to let them go again. And this is what Mary was doing in this place. Jesus reassured Mary that she would see him again. And he had not yet ascended to the Father. So he instructed her with the same message to provide to the other followers. However, his message here actually confirmed two truths. First, his physical presence on earth was temporary. He was not going to be there very long before he would ascend to his place in glory. And second, his relationship with his followers had to change now. They could not depend on him physically being here. It would give way to another kind of bond, and that was a bond of faith. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which happened at Pentecost. So reduced to the bare essentials, Jesus' admonition consisted of only three imperative words or commands. He said, do not hold, go, and tell, in verse 17. Her immediate response to his commands is obedience. She didn't hang around there clinging to Jesus. She went immediately and did as she was told. As we move on to verses 19 and 20, before the day of Jesus' resurrection had ended, his followers began congregating in a probably a familiar meeting place, maybe an upper room where they met and they locked the doors. And it describes it further in Luke chapter 24. If you remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize Jesus till he broke the bread and all of a sudden their eyes were open and they could see him. And picking up in verse 33 
uh, or 32 of Luke chapter 24, or 30, yeah, chapter 24, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, seven miles. They must have sprinted back because it was near nightfall then. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them. The doors were closed and locked in anticipation of persecution from the Jewish leaders. And despite the locked doors, Jesus suddenly appears in this congregation of followers. Luke tells us that his appearance was so mysteriously by unconventional means that the disciples thought maybe he was a ghost. Nevertheless, he possessed flesh and bones that could be touched and sense of touch. They could feel him, that he was real. He greeted the frightened followers by reminding them of the peace that he proclaimed earlier in John chapter 14, verse 27. Now, John concludes just a few of the details. To illustrate this first-time narrative was quite different in nature because Christ was in his resurrected body. He obviously still bore some of the scars from the cross, but it was a different body than what it was placed in that tomb. If you remember back to Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, he was revived from death. He was restored to good health. He lived with the same limitations, though. He suffered additional illnesses and injury, and he eventually died again. What a bummer, going through death the first time, only to be brought back to have to go through it again. The resurrection of Jesus was fundamentally and profoundly different. It was, in fact, much more superior to Lazarus' raising from the dead. His resurrected body was still completely human, and this is something we have a hard time grasping, I think, at least I do but it possessed supernatural qualities. It was not restricted by the space and time that we're restricted by. He could appear instantaneously through locked doors. He could move from one location. He was up in Emmaus just before this, and he vanished instantly. And now he appeared instantly in this locked room. He was raised to a new kind of life, never to die again in the glorious hope that we have is that one day we'll be cloaked in the same type of resurrection body that Christ had, a body that will never decay or age or have any type of illness or injury, a body that's not contained by space and time at the last day when the resurrection happens, we'll be lifted up and be restored into these new bodies. Apparently, the disciples, though, were slow to accept this. What they saw was an authentic presence of the risen master, but they didn't understand it. John's description applies to the entire group of disciples who were there. We tend to think of the 12, but we know Mary Magdalene was probably there. Other women that first came to the tomb were there. Other disciples that were followers of Jesus were all in this locked room. Peter and John were likely present also. And they had all, at least to some extent, already accepted their Christ's resurrection because they saw the empty grave. Nevertheless, the whole group were very slow to believe. And unlike Mary, who embraced Christ as soon as she realized who it was, immediately following in that night in this room, let me pick back up in Luke chapter 24, verses 35 through 43 to fill in the details. 
It says, then the two from Emmaus told their stories. They returned to this location and saw how Jesus appeared to them as they were walking on the road and how they had recognized him with the breaking of the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself suddenly appeared and was standing among them. Shalom. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking that they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubts? Look at my hands and my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood in disbelief and filled with joy and wonder. How can this be? Then he asked them. He knew they were still struggling. He says, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he ate while, as they watched. They must have been standing there. He's chewing his food and swallowing it. Ghosts can't do that. He must be the risen Christ. This increased, this increase of objective proof, by the way, is a pattern throughout this entire segment of John. As we move on to verses 21 and 22, once the disciples' joy, was re joy replaced their fears, which fulfilled the Lord's promise in the upper room in chapter seven, 14, verse 27, he then recommissioned them to fulfill God's great plan of redemption, as he initially stated in John chapter 17, verse 18. And then he reaffirmed that soon the coming of the Holy Spirit would be upon them, as he said several times in John. And also Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel all refer to the coming age when the Holy Spirit would indwell them permanently. And he illustrated this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit as he breathed on the disciples and they were filled with the Spirit. Maybe only temporary until Pentecost, but he breathed out his Spirit. And it reminds me of the act of creation where God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living being. It also reminds me of those dry skeletons becoming alive again in Ezekiel chapter 37. So this breathing out of the Spirit was either just a foretaste, a brief foretaste, or just a symbolic act of the Holy Spirit that would come upon them at Pentecost to indwell them permanently forever. Now, entire books of verse 23, as we move on, have been written about this verse and its parallels in Matthew 16, 19, and Matthew 18, verse 18. Now, some expositors claim that these verses grant apostolic authority to certain individuals as Christ's proxy on earth. Moreover, some expositors claim that apostolic authority was passed down from generation to generation through every year. And there were still men who can offer this forgiveness, such as in the Catholic tradition, where the pope or the priest can offer forgiveness. But those traditions also usually have a return act of some sort of penance. But indeed, the apostles were granted authority, the same authority given to all believers. All redeemed men and women can proclaim the message of forgiveness of Christ. The phrase, their sins are forgiven in the New International Version, is in a passive voice in a perfect tense, describing an action that God had already taken. 
It's known to Bible scholars as divine passive. That has lasting results. Christ was saying, I've already forgiven those who believe. And with that, if any responds to belief as we present them with the gospel, that proclamation of the gospel, we as disciples and the disciples that were with him that night have the authority to pronounce them. Because of your belief in Christ, you are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Not that we bestow any type of divine authority to forgive sins ourselves, but by proclaiming God's word, he has already forgiven them upon their receipt of him, their belief. And this is consistent with the way we saw Jesus conducting his own ministry. While he both healed and forgave specific individuals, almost to the, every account of that, he says their faith has either saved them or healed them or made them whole. It was all the time based on their faith in him that healed them, forgave their sins, and made them whole. But the flip side of that, while his presence became a moment of moral crisis for some, those who choose not to believe had condemned themselves. So their sins would not be forgiven because they would not believe. We move on to verses 24 and 25. Thomas, he was absent at Jesus' visit that night of the resurrection, and they were all huddled in the secret room. Some after Jesus, sometime after Jesus' crucifixion, maybe that next day, or even the day he died and was taken off the cross, Thomas probably headed back to his home in Galilee. And returning back to Jerusalem sometime during this week, he heard the news. We have seen the Lord. He probably even sold Peter and John, who had to be convincing on that. But this earned Thomas's nickname. We call him Doubting Thomas, or if somebody doubts you, you say, oh, you're just a Doubting Thomas. But I think it might be more accurate to say pessimistic or melancholy Thomas, or maybe a reflective Thomas. Because the only recorded statements in John here of Thomas reveal a gloomy and pitiful outlook. In chapter 11, verse 16, he says, let us also go that we may die with him. That's a real way to encourage somebody. Or in chapter 14, verse 5, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And this was Thomas's perspective or outlook on life. Thomas wanted concrete proof, not to satisfy his doubt, because he did believe in Christ but to overcome his hopelessness that was in him. So he is in, said, in effect, risen? That's too good to be true, and I will not allow my hopes to be dashed until I can verify it myself. And we move on to verses 26 through 29. About a week or eight days later, after the Lord's first visit to the disciples' hideout, Jesus appeared as he had before, offering them the same gesture. Shalom, peace be with you. He immediately gave attention to the neediest man in the room. And I'm comforted by how the Lord handled Thomas that night, his gentle approach. While he addressed Thomas's disbelief, he knew that the real core of Thomas's problem was hopelessness. Or maybe he was just a tough-minded pragmatist. He was not obstinate, obstinate or unwilling to believe. And even though Thomas's statement is somewhat of a hyperbole, 
The Lord offered Thomas this reassurance that he wanted. His general rebuke says, it's okay to place your confidence in me, Thomas. I won't let you down. I am here. I am real. And I will not abandon you. And we see in this passage, Thomas didn't need to touch the Lord's wounds. And his confession is the pinnacle of this very moment of John's narrative. He says, my Lord and my God. He believed because he saw. And Jesus reaffirmed the disciples' confession of faith and then responded with a blessing to all, all those who accepted the truth of the resurrection. And because of their faith in God, they didn't need the physical evidence. And it was referring to us and all generations of believers since Christ's resurrection. This blessing on faith of the past believers in the Old Testament suggesting suggested the blessing on all generation of future believers. And if we look at the last two verses, 30 and 31, John illustrated four different faith responses here to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In each encounter, the subjects considered the evidence and then chose whether to believe or not to believe. In which each passing episode throughout this narrative, the tension between tangible evidence and belief increased. The more we went through it, the more evidence they needed in order to believe that required proof at last. And finally, Jesus says, blessed are you who believe because of what you've seen, but more blessed are all those who believe in me and have not yet seen this physical concrete proof. And with that, John turns to us, the reader. He says, Jesus performed signs or miracles and that convinced reasonable men and women that Jesus is the Christ and the hope of eternal life for all people. Now these things were written so that we might believe and believe that we have eternal life. Dying people, people on their deathbed, are not interested in your opinions. So the matters of belief becomes critically important as death renders all of us the truth undeniable without any type of second chances. So what's our application today in John chapter 20, an entire chapter? If you look at your bulletin insert, on the side it says application at the top. It's responding to the risen Lord. In John chapter 20, John describes the responses of people confronted with evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And they're generally reacted in one of four ways. We see that Peter and John believed with indirect evidence. They responded by the initial report of curiosity, seeing the empty tomb and the clothed graves that were there, the grave clothes that were there. And when they viewed into the empty tomb, they saw a hollow wrappings, and they believed, didn't fully understand what had gone on, but they believed that Jesus had risen. Secondly was that of Mary Magdalene. She believed with some direct evidence. At first, she thought the Lord was not risen, but Christ called her name, and she believed, turned to her, him, and clung to him. Third, it was some of the disciples and Thomas a week following. They're slow to believe, even with direct evidence. They initially responded to the Lord's presence with fear, and then slowly accepted him as proved over and over, I'm physical, you can touch me. And after they were still unsure, he says, give me something to eat. They tossed him a sardine. And he ate it in their presence. 
And then they knew that this was the risen Christ. And fourthly, some believe without evidence, either indirect or direct. They believe based on the promises of their Old Testament scriptures, because everybody before Christ who put their faith in God and their sacrifices believed on the coming Messiah. And we, who are the post-resurrection believers, have his word as our concrete proof, have the testimony of people throughout the centuries that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, Jesus never questioned the need for evidence of faith, which is offered the signs by the many signs we have in his word to validate his identity and his authentic, authenticity of his message. However, he says... The selective use of tangible evidence is not, will not satisfy a skeptic. If you're skeptical of that, or you're anti-Christ, then no amount of proof in the world will change your mind. And during the public ministry, most of the time, Jesus used signs and miracles to convince willing hearts to believe. He did not use them to convince, try to convince unwilling hearts. He offered tangible evidence to add confidence to their trust. And he followed the same model after his resurrection. Now, if you'll read through the narratives of the Gospels, you won't find Jesus appearing to unbelievers after his resurrection. At least none are mentioned. It was only to those who believed. His followers doubted his resurrection, not because they doubted the truthfulness of the claims, they merely thought the resurrection was too good to be true. It was unimaginable to them. Therefore, Jesus welcomed their belief, and he tenderly offered evidence to them to build their confidence in the truth. Nevertheless, he praised even more those who will believe that don't have this concrete proof of me standing before them. And if you look on the other side of your bullet insert today, the whole message boils down to faith and evidence. Faith and evidence are not unrelated in our spiritual life of a Christian. However, our starting point is crucial. Trusting God must, become, must come first before evidence. Apart from itself, belief. Apart from belief, evidence is virtually meaningless. And I like to boil it down into these couple phrases. Refusal to believe plus evidence only ends up in confusion. But willingness to believe, having that tender heart of reception, plus the evidence that we find in his word and of the saints have gone since this time gives us confidence in the Lord. So whenever I encounter a skeptic, someone who demands evidence before they believe, it'd be foolish to offer proof because they're not going to believe until they're willing to believe. It's no need to waste pointless debate on those who have their minds set. Instead, focus on the real issues. The sinfulness is the need for a savior. When a lost person comes to terms with their own sinfulness in their lives, genuinely so, then the next logical step is belief. Then ironically, they find great comfort and confidence in this historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. So the question is wrapped up, or the lesson is wrapped up in one question today. What is my reaction to the resurrected Lord. We have to each ask ourselves that. Do we believe, and with the evidence that we have, accept that truth of God, 
truth that Jesus Christ was our Messiah, our Savior. And that's what Christ in the message of today's is. Now, we're quickly coming to the end of the good news, according to John the Apostle. We've been in it almost a year now. Only two more messages. Next week, we'll explore our weaknesses and his strength. So please read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 23 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this new year that you've given us, a new beginning, a new life. We thank you for this message of Christ and how he presented himself to each of the groups, Father, and how gradually they came to believe and accept the evidence because of their belief that Jesus Christ is our Savior, our Messiah. He is the Lamb of God, which took away the sin of the world. Thank you for the belief that we can have in this, Father, for the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that keeps that faith alive and at the forefront of our minds, Father. May we serve you faithfully in all that we do. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.